Hi everyone! Welcome to Season 3 of the Hamilton Review of Books podcast. Our first episode is on speculative fiction, and our guest is Janet Hoy. Janet is the owner of one of our great independent bookstores, The City in the City. Before that, she worked in social services for 25 years and decided to change it up when she turned 50. So she opened a bookstore with her partner Tim. Tim, Tim's cousin Tony, and Janet also host a podcast called New and Used Book Talk. It's on a bit of a hiatus right now, but it will be back in 2024. With no further ado, enjoy the episode. today, Alex? Uh, pretty good. I am really happy you've joined uh, our show. Uh, I've been asking you or mentioning it to you, I think, for a while now that I would love to have you uh, as a guest. I did a little bit of an intro already for our audience, but uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? What got you into books? What gets you into reading? What are the kinds of books and novels and other nonfiction or whatever else you read that really gets you going? Yeah, I guess, you know, yeah, just always was reading books as a kid and then sort of, you know, teenage years, not so much. And then, like, as I got through school more, started picking it up again and was really doing a lot of classics and older stuff. And then, and it leads into what we're talking about today, like speculative fiction, sort of started reading some more speculative stuff. And it really resonated with me to the point, well, then I just started reading more and more and more. And then the next thing you know, like I had been a social worker for 25 years. And I remember starting to feel a little disgruntled and like just not happy, um, getting burnt out. And I was like, well, maybe I'll go back. And, and one day I was just walking down Bay Street in Toronto and thought I should go to Ryerson and take the publishing pro you know, program. It just stuck with me. So I did that back in 2014 and kind of realized, was looking for internships and stuff like that. And no one wanted a 45-year-old intern. And I didn't want to be a 45-year-old intern. And then like Tim and I were talking about moving to Hamilton and we started discussing a bookstore. And then I got mad at my job and quit one night. And <laughs> six weeks later, I've signed a lease for a bookstore. I'm like, oh, okay. Things are happening a bit faster than I thought. <laughs> So as I mentioned in the intro is the bookstore that you did start is called The City in the City Books. Uh, it's named after one of the classics of speculative fiction. Can you tell us about what made you name your book uh, or your bookstore that? Well, it was that night when I had quit my job and Tim and I, we went out um, to the Capitol just to have a drink or so. Cause I was like, oh my God, I've just quit my job. What am I going to do? And we started talking about uh, the bookstore again that we hadn't talked about for a while. And then we were just like talking about, well, what would we name it? And Tim was like, well, sometimes I find like maybe a book that we love or something. I said, what, are we going to name it the city and the city books? <laughs> and we just sort of thought about it and thought about it. And we're like, yeah, 
we tried other things, but we just kept coming back to that one. And because we love China Mayville, and it seems like a fitting book for Hamilton. Absolutely. It's weird. It's urban. It, a, a, a title that maybe not everyone will know, but those in the know will definitely know. Exactly. I mean, every now and then I'm like, especially when I have to give someone my email address, I'm like, why did I pick such a long title for a bookstore? <laughs> <laughs> You, you need to have the, the email shortened to an acronym, I guess. Yes, GCC or something. So you're on here talking about speculative fiction, and it's uh, I think it's um, a genre that has grown in importance in the last 30, 40 years. I think uh, there we'll go through some titles that I think really shaped, shaped it, but it's still kicking and strong, and I think... Uh, in the context of all the things that are going on in the world, these kinds of uh, imaginations of going to happen are uh, definitely at the forefront and are, and are good sellers. Uh, I think we were just talking before we started recording about uh, the book that won the the Booker Prize this year, which is Prophet Song by Paul uh, Lynch, I think that's his name. And and that's definitely a work of, of speculative fiction. So can you tell us about what what do you see as speculative fiction? I sort of see it like it's like an umbrella term for like that puts in so many other genres like sci-fi, dystopian, fantasy, magical, realism, um, weird, you know, horror would fit in there. But I think horror is broad enough to sort of be in its own category as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's like there's got to be some element in the story that um, does not exist in this world. That we know of so far. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and it needs to tie into the story. Like, I think a good example, did you read The Midnight Library by um, Matt Haig? I did not. Yeah, it. I think it's sort of like the classic sort of speculative fiction book. It's optimistic. It doesn't start off that way, but there's a magical library that can take you back to different periods of your life where you can make decisions that can change your life for the better or worse, then you can decide what sort of stream you want. And, you know, there's no library that that, that exists that we know of. <laughs> and, uh, and it furthers the story along by making the main character, Nora, make uh, decisions in her own life. Why do you think authors like to do this speculative kind of work? What kind of freedom they have? What, what do you think, or as a reader, what do you think you, you like in speculative fiction? Like writing it, it gives people so much more of a chance to explore different themes in that. Like, I think a great example of that would be like, which, you know, it combines sci-fi, history, fantasy, and it also explores the African-American experience, you know, and it connects it all together to their history and their ancestry. So you're able to build this world exploring themes, but you don't have, it's not laying it out sentence for sentence. It's letting your imagination take you there instead of just being told. I think one of the things I like about it is that I'm not huge into detailed world building which is often the case what you get in in like genres like fantasy and some science fiction and i think a lot of like the more literary uh, speculative fiction takes some of the best things of fantasy and science fiction in terms of imagining a world that didn't exist or breaking the confines of 
of the factual past to, to, to explore different things. And it and it can do so without necessarily laying out this detail. This is what happened then. This is what happened then. Which sometimes I think there's a reason fantasy books are all like 800 pages uh, because it's that's part of the the stick. And I, I get a lot of people love that that stuff, but I, I, I much prefer that the world building to be integrated into the story in a more subtle fashion. And I think the best of speculative fiction does that. The One of the thing, books that I think both of us really enjoyed this year was Biography of X by Catherine Lacey, which is a very, like a, very classical in that sense, like a reimagination of what the United States would have looked like if the Civil War had ended differently and in different formations, political formations emerged out of that. And uh, I, I really, you know, there is some world building there, but it's it's told through the lens of this biography, this fictional biography of the protagonist, or not the protagonist, she's kind of off stage always. But, but anyways, I found, I think that's what I get from it. Yeah, like the ones that are set in this world, but are different. I, I kind of like the book, both like I do like a whole new world like you know the Baslov China Melville um trilogy but also like Book of X the biography of X sorry it's speculative <laughs> that's an excellent book as well um but yeah the way that she took the world and changed it was just so fascinating and I do have some picks that go both ways you know it, I don't, it's hard to say to me what I like better, but I like it. I like it no, all. Oh, for sure. And I, <laughs> so. uh, with Biography of X, it's uh, the it's such an ambitious book. I don't know if it always works at times in terms of the. I uh, I think we're in a, Janet and I are in a book club together. I I think you were, were. I'm not sure if you were in that particular book club we had on it. No, it's yeah. been hard for me to make it on uh, Sundays because I'm usually at work now. So <laughs> one of the issues that I brought up is that she really fails dealing with questions of race and even I think X is married to a black woman in the book because the, it, it's a wonderful book a like physical copy with pictures and things like that and one of her her spouses is a black woman and there's hardly a mention of what kind of dynamic that would create and which is odd because the whole kinds of divisions that Lacey traces out in her book are are she pitches them as religious divisions but and avoids the question of race and slavery and segregation uh, in a way that I thought maybe she didn't feel comfortable as a white woman to to explore in depth, but it felt like uh, it, it took something away from what otherwise was a very um, a very ambitious novel. I did read an interview with her, and I, she did have some good mentions in it. Um, yeah, it could have been explored further, but because uh, she grew up in the South. So yeah. she did say that she didn't want to go too far into it because she didn't want to portray everyone in the South. Because she's like, the people that I knew in the South were not like a lot of people in the South. So 
I think that was part of it as well. Anyways, we could go. We're not talking about Catherine Lacey's book today, but we had a little mini book club there. Uh, but it's a great example. But let's chat about some of the books that uh, of speculative fiction that uh, we think are influential. I like obviously, I think for Canadian authors and probably for the genre as a whole, Margaret Atwood's uh, A Handmaid's Tale is is kind of like I, I don't say I don't want to say it launches the genre, but I think it's one of the big first massively well-sold, widely read examples of recreating, reimagining what a society can look like or go to the past we could go down and obviously that book has continued to be influential uh in terms of like it was turned into a series there was a sequel that should not have won the book prize but it did and then but you know obviously but that that novel is uh as an influence to the genre i think is it stands alone but is there other examples uh, that you would think are really important or that you loved and you want to share well octavia butler and i mean i would there's so many of hers that we could talk about. I mean, the, we picked one for our book club. I can't remember which one that one was, but I wouldn't say that was one of her best. Like, I, if I was to tell someone where to start yeah. with Octavia yeah. Butler, I would probably go with Parable of the Sower. Yes. What was the, her other one that was a, a huge hit? Um, Kindred. Kindred, yes, which also like that. That's uh, for those who don't know. Kindred involves, uh, I guess, it's this interracial couple in the sixties or seventies in the United States who find some sort of portal back to. Uh, slavery uh, or slave times in the United States and obviously an interracial couple being thrown into a slave society and the kind of dynamics that would produce. Definitely, I think, uh, another one of the books that uh, influences uh, the speculative fiction genre. Yeah, and I I think I wrote down some of my favorite ones and, um, you know, like you look at even like Philip K. Dick, you know, you Man in the High Castle, I think, is one of my favorites. And uh, Fahrenheit 451 and Roadside Picnic was one. Did you ever read Roadside Picnic? I did not. Who's the author? It's a Russian, um, I think they're brothers, uh, Boris and Arkady Strugatsky. I might have, sorry if I've mispronounced it. A sort of an alien invasion in Russia. And like, but it's sort of like, you, they're trying to get in like there's all these places that you can't get into you know so it's sort of explaining like how difficult it is sometimes and the importance of borders or maybe lack of borders yeah so those are obviously classics that i think you know which uh correct to correct myself obviously there's a huge amount of uh classics that predated atwood's uh, work that we've all read in high school uh very 451 uh, is uh, obviously a book that many of us read and which is so timely when it comes to when it comes to questions of uh book bannings and uh, what's going on now i think that's one of the things that speculative fiction does it's it's not just imagining potential Futures. It's. I think it's also commenting on concerns that the writers have about the direction we're going on now. They can visualize this kind of outcome that is is horrible, uh, and and 
Ray Bradbury writing, I guess, in the post-McCarthyist era in terms of recognizing the how what impact that had on speech and literature. Atwood, when she talks about her novel, talks about that everything in A Handmaid's Tale is something that has existed in history. So it's not compu- it's not completely fabricating. The alien stuff might be fabricating things out of thin air, but a, a lot of it is commenting on real structural problems that exist in our societies now and trying to push the envelope about the directions those can go in. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think you can go without saying Orwell either, who's been highly influential. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, so uh, is there any like more modern uh, examples? Like where do you see this genre right now today? We obviously mentioned uh, Lacey, but there's it's it's quite a popular form of writing. Is there yeah. any other examples you, you like to... Um, some, well, we already talked about China Mayville, um, but there's a small series. Do you know? Um, it's through AK Press, the anarchist press. Okay, yeah. And you know Adrienne Marie Brown? I don't. Tell us about her. <laughs> She's written this series. There's two books in it called um, uh, Grievers and Maroons. It's set in Detroit, and uh, the main character, her mother is like patient zero for this virus that's going around that kills off most of Detroit, and you find out why, and only people in Detroit are affected. Oh, wow, okay. And you find out why later. But it's such quiet tale about like grief, also community too, because like the woman, she becomes very, very alienated. But like, especially at the end of the first book, like she finds a community garden, speculative fiction that, as you said, takes a realness. Like, yes, you've got to look for food. So maybe you would find people that you can start community garden. She's biking around the city, just like the the smaller touches like she doesn't even think about maybe i should steal gas and drive throughout it's like i'm going to hop on my bike to get from a to b (laughs) it's that sort of world that i like to see and another canadian is um i think there's a lot of great um speculative fiction coming out from indigenous writers yes the sherry demolines like the marrow thieves yes absolutely great book and then, like, the moon of the crusted snow. Because so many of them, like, look at... They're not saying, like, the apocalypse is coming. They're like, we've survived the apocalypse. No, they're just uh, fantastic uh, ways to use literature to to tell one's history, but also to reimagine a future that breaks from that history. Uh, obviously, the and just to go back to, to Paul Lynch's book that just won the Booker Prize... Uh, the Booker Prize tends to be a little more literary, I think, in its orientation. So it hasn't. I don't think it's really uh, embraced too much uh, of this speculative genre in the way that some other prizes or readers have done so. So that in that sense, it was kind of cool to see this book that takes place in. Uh, it begins as with a union activist getting arrested by a new more authoritarian conservative regime in Ireland and quickly 
the power of this regime grows with dissent being um, uh, criminalized and resistance, pockets of resistance and military resistance beginning to appear. And in the context, like he was speaking to the, the rise of the far right in Europe and how quickly uh, liberal democracies can descend into much more ugly forms of government. Uh, but he also deals a lot with uh, the refu- the experience of refugees, the experience of uh, living in the a total war zone, which you know, in the context of what's going on in Gaza right now, uh, felt very timely. Um, I had some uh, some issues with the novel, but in terms of the feeling too real at times, <laughs> which I think is some criticism that you can have of speculative fiction because it's not escapist in many respects. It's a uh, when you look at what's happened in Ireland in the last in the week that he's won with the uh, the riot yeah. that happened, like the far yeah. right rioting yeah. in that, very timely. No, absolutely, I think he he, he has a, a sense of what's the that it's a fragile order we live in right now, and the outcomes can be uh, can go in all sorts of directions. Uh, anything else in terms of like you know someone coming into your bookstore? What was what's the speculative work of speculative fiction you would? Uh, you would try to push in their hand. I usually kind of ask what sort of ones that they like, you know, because it is such a wide range. Like right now, everyone's like the fourth wing, the iron. Those are the big sellers, which I haven't had a chance to read. So when they come in, I always ask, are you more into like something like a climate fiction book, like or a dystopian book? Like maybe you're more Jeff Vandermeer than uh, Becky Chambers, like someone saying, I want a a nice sci-fi book. Well, then let's look at, you know, uh, Becky Chambers, like the the Psalm for the Well-Built that is about a monk and a robot becoming friends. (laughs) Okay, that sounds sweet. Yeah, so for the people that want hope, it's like, here, take this. You want gloom and doom? Here's this. (laughs) So I guess... That leads to my last question before we we take a short break is like, why do we read speculative fiction? Because like we live in a pretty dark world right now. I think, you know, the the threat of climate disaster is very real, especially for younger folks. You can tell the kind of anger and anxiety that young people feel. We we see what's happening in the Middle East uh, in terms of an, uh, a, you know, an ethnic cleansing and a genocide. And the and and often people turn to literature to escape. Sometimes they turn to literature to to stew in their anxieties and their in their like. What what do you think we get from speculative fiction? Kind of two things. Like first, hope. Like you were just talking about climate change and that. Did you read the uh, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson book, The Ministry? I I I did try. Uh, I I gave up. It was a very long audiobook, and maybe that wasn't the best format for it. What did you? But I know he imagines a, a world where they've solved not completely, but they've they've come up with political solutions to the climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a bit of hope there at the end, and you come away going, "Oh, maybe." Maybe we're not all going to die, burned to death, you know. But I would say that first chapter is one of the scariest chapters I've ever read in my life. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, because you're so present in it. Like, 
And you can see, like, we're not that far down the road from that happening. Him in the 50 degrees, and he just has that little bit of water, and he spends the rest of his life feeling guilty that he didn't share that little bit of water. Yeah. And, like, they go to the wa- like they go to the river to cool down, but the river is too hot. And you're just like, oh, my God. But I also think that um, people read it to escape. Sometimes immersing yourself in a new world, you know, it's, I can't watch the genocide in Gaza anymore. I'm going to go to this world instead to sit. Like, even if you're looking at, like... Even if it's a crappy world, at least it's not my crappy world. <laughs> you know, I think there was a time people read speculative fiction partially as a way to kick themselves into action as a warning you know i could imagine uh, of potential uh, negative directions we're going in and i think that was uh you know reading margaret atwood in the 1980s i think would feel different than reading it now uh and i think reading climate change or cli- uh, what's it called Cli-fi, I think. Cli-fi in the 90s when we kind of knew about global warming, it was coming. To reading it now is very different as well because we've done nothing for 20 years and our prospects are so much worse. And so I, I'm, just, I'm just curious about the future of the genre when, when the world is looking more and more, the real world is looking more and more like the speculative creations of these authors. Uh, what new things the genre is going to have to do to explore, to continue to remain relevant i'm not 100 sure but one thing that i did notice like pre-pandemic i'm i mean we weren't even open for a year before the pandemic hit and it's weird saying pre-pandemic but pre-lockdown <laughs> yeah pre-pandemic you know dystopian was huge we were selling tons of it but during the biggest hit of the pandemic like the first couple of years People were going more for, like, different worlds. Like, dystopian was not there because I think people were like, I feel like I'm living it. Yes. (laughs) So you sort of think, hopefully, people will just keep writing, challenging what's happening in the world through it. And But still, also, I think people need more hope than just we're all going to die in a fiery thing. I think think you'll see more hopeful books than more gloom and also um, more thoughtful books about what's happening no absolutely and that's a perfect segue to our little break uh, because I think we're about to discuss a book that is maybe less doom and gloom though profound and sad but uh, definitely uh, asking more questions than depicting horrors uh, and that's going to be girlfriend on mars by deborah willis so we'll take a short little break and when we come back we'll do our mini book club Welcome back, everybody. So we're now in our second half of today's podcast on speculative fiction. And as usual, we're going to have a mini book club. And this 
episode, we're talking about Girlfriend on Mars by Deborah Willis. This is a book that was long listed for the Canadian Giller Prize this year. Uh, it's um, a fascinating little book. I'm going to let ja Janet go into details about what it is. It's Hamish Hamilton, which I think is an imprint of Penguin Canada that did it. So yeah, so uh, Janet, you wanted to read this book. Can you tell us what's it about? Okay, I'll just sort of give you the back cover synopsis, basically. I would say it's about a couple whose lives are in a rut. They are surviving mainly by selling pot and their and their relationship. They've been together for, Amber and Kevin, have been together for about 14 years. And they're not in the healthiest of relationships, and it is imploding. Um, so the woman decides that she needs a change so she ends up competing on a reality tv show called mars now where if she wins her and someone else would go to live on mars um her, and her boyfriend kevin is none too pleased about this and he decides not to leave their apartment until she returns <laughs> Absolutely right, and so yeah, we and it goes through her whole experience on the game show. I'm not sure how much of a spoiler we want to give, but since the book is called Girlfriend on Mars, I think we can at least acknowledge that she does eventually head out there. I think that captures what it's about. What are your thoughts? You like it? I did. Yeah, it was um, interesting, and I kind of like how it was written. Like it's varying chapters, so like you get Kevin in the first person. And Amber in third person. Oh, I didn't know this. Uh, I usually do. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of broad, broadens it out. And so you get more of Kevin's perspective where you get to see the reality show more as a whole. Like, what did you think of it? I, I really liked it. Uh, I love books with short chapters because it's really great for pacing because for the most part they're they're quite compact. I know some people don't like books where the characters are not exactly likable. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I don't think that's actually a fair complaint of, <laughs> of literature because a lot of people in the world are not likable or are or are complicated and have all sorts of back histories and experiences that have created who they are. And in this particular case, you have these two very complicated people who I guess hooked up when they were teenagers and stayed together for, I think, a variety of reasons, like Kevin's mother died at quite a young age so he's been abandoned by his sole caregiver someone he was incredibly close with and Amber comes from a, a very religious family and had been a competitive gymnast who has an injury that destroys her I guess she was on the verge of being an Olympian uh, and they found solace and comfort within themselves but I think it, in many ways it stunted their growth as human beings and they end up in the situation they are 14 years down the road where they need to find something else. Well, Amber realizes that Kevin doesn't. And I think that's a lot of it is that Kevin just decides to stew. I think Kevin would have been happy for the rest of his life on yeah. the couch with her without realizing Absolutely. how it happened. And, and very smart people. Like, obviously, Amber is smart enough to get onto the show and to compete because there's a difference, like skill events and part of it's voted by audiences but part of it you have to be successful so you're not kicked off it's a survivor type uh, show and and kevin has turned into this botanist effectively and producing hot 
high quality marijuana. It all takes place before I think a pot becomes legalized or it's on the the cusp of that. So the uh, and so it's uh, but like yeah, as you said, he's just he would be fine just living on his on his couch. And he's like in the midst of it while she's away. She has he has this other woman who's interested in him, and he's he's just a jerk uh, in that respect. Yeah, poor Bronwyn, but you know. Good for Bronwyn by the end, you know? Yeah, because you just sort of see, and just because they're both so broken, like I think Kevin has way more pronounced mental health issues that he cannot even think to address. And Amber just doesn't really have the skills or that to realize what's really happening with Kevin or just the wherewithal to deal with him because she's going through her own shit. <laughs> and the extent you will go in to get out of a relationship, you'll go to another plan. Yes. <laughs> um, it's like, it's easier than breaking up. It's just like I'm going to Mars. I, so in a sense, this is not a more, a very conventional speculative work because it's, it's almost dealing with the near past, right? But it's exploring things that haven't happened yet. Uh, the company that's sponsoring this trip is a, a Musk space-esque type of company, uh, that's yes. sending them off. There is a character who, who's a fill-in for Musk, which is a, seems to be a popular theme in books this year because, uh, uh, Eleanor Cadden's book, uh, Burnham Wood has a similar kind of sociopathic billionaire at its heart and uh, so in many respects you're dealing with both these books I think people who've read both of them during the Giller long list said that they're dealing with similar kinds of questions and they're they're really dealing with questions about like what's going to happen in the next five and ten years from now what will technology do to save us from because Amber, a lot of her concern is environmental, driven by environmental and how badly we use our resources. And she sees the trip to Mars in a more, aside from get her out to get out of this relationship, as a chance to explore new technologies, which will be essential for humans surviving in a, a post-climate change world. So I think in, in many respects, it's it's... It's, it's a different kind of... Yeah, and what was the one, too? Because besides that one, there was the one that was long-listed for the booker about the woman that goes into space as well. She starts off on a boat. Oh, in Ascension. In right? Ascension, too, yeah. Lots of people heading out into space. <laughs> yes. I sort of thought of it as kind of a spec thick light. Yes, know? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but I found, like, interesting, like, I think because it's more speculative. When looking at it, it sort of is exploring like love, how love can change. Because I don't think, although they were a terrible couple and should not be together, I think there was still love there. But it's changed and they've both grown. And and it's also, grief is such a big part of the book as well. Yeah, because they, they both lose things that are essential to their identity his Kevin is uh, his mom obviously who he it seems like from their history like they spent every moment together they developed a love they had a love of movies that they would always watch together uh, that he tries to bring others and, and I think that's Kevin's backstory he did work he wanted to be a movie maker and but could only really make it as an extra and then Amber obviously losing her dreams of of being a successful athlete and and losing her family in the, in in many respects right the family that had been tight in her fate in in many respects yeah yeah and just sort of looking about how you deal with mental health as well that you don't see like as often or in books or 
Well, in this case, he self-medicates. Does he do drugs? Or does he just sell it? I forget. Does Kevin actually? Yes. He partakes in his own product? Yeah, and wasn't there that big scene where they all do mushrooms? Yes, with his friend and, and, and Bronwyn, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I was just going to say, like, in reading articles, like I read the New York Times review of it, and it's sort of looking at what is real. Because, like, she's on a reality TV show that's not really that real, you know, and he's living in movies all the time. Where we try to find our ways to discover ourselves through, in the realm of the imagination or the imaginary. And, and they just choose different things. I did, as insufferable as they are at times, I, 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 I really appreciate that time period in life in, in, in many respects. Because I think we were all there. You know, a big theme of this story is like the people we're together with in our 20s who are, are so formative in terms of who we become as persons. Uh, but for whatever reason, we're too young or they're just not the good match for us that it doesn't work out. Uh, and I think from what you're saying, they, they needed to move on. And I think at one point they, they do both end up moving on, though the impetus to do so is different for each one uh but at the same time there's always a fondness a care a love that was central to their relationship with one another so i i love books that take place in in the late 20s in someone's life or the mid to late 20s because i think it is such an essential moment in the human experience and uh, it's been explored a yes. lot in literature, but you know, how many campus novels do we have? Though that seems to be a less popular genre these days than it was maybe 20 years ago. But I love, I love situating books in this, in this time period in life. And I think how it, how it uses issues, speculative fiction to kind of like delve into those very real human experiences. And then it provides these mechanisms to get out of those that are outlandish. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So who did you like more? Did you like uh, Kevin or Amber? I don't know. I think kind of went on things. In some ways, I found, and maybe it was like the difference of first person to third person, I found Kevin a bit more relatable to me. Um, but I could certainly see Amber's frustration with, with him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who would want to be with him <laughs> at that point? Yeah. So it's hard to say um, because I don't think I could ever be that person that would go off onto a reality TV show. <laughs> so there was that sort of vacuousness. And, and, and not only go on to this show, and I think this is something that, that's brought up. It's like it's very clear that Amber's not coming back. It's a one-way mission. The idea is to cut, to begin the colonization of Mars and to be asked to do that. The finality and, and, and then the delusion of Kevin. Assuming, yes. still holding on to this sense that we're still in a relationship. Even after she's on the ship, there's still this illusion that we're still together in some respects is frustrating, but also understandable in terms of knowing, knowing what we do of him at this because like the whole thing with Bronwyn is he technically cheating on her because she's basically like she's going to Mars <laughs> but yes, he's still yes. sort of but is he why do you think they chose what well, the author chose to have Kevin in first person and Amber in the third person I don't know yeah first person's always a, a, a my favorite authors, or one of my favorite authors, is Kazuo Ishiguro, and he's well known for 
almost exclusively writing in the first person and he describes that there's so much you can do with it because it's inherently unreliable yes you're you're telling you're hearing the story exclusively through the eyes of this person and through their and, and it's being seen through the prism of all their insecurities and their their framing and and what you're getting is very much a story seen through their eyes but it's not necessarily the accurate picture and and in some respects that's great because you can really delve deep into the emotional side of someone that's less based on is it true or not it's just how they feel but on the other hand there's something there behind that you're trying to peel away and then in the third person you don't get that you have this omnipresent narrator who's describing everything more accurate yeah and i guess it was more to show the inner workings of the reality show as well like you yeah. get a better sort of look at that than you would through her eyes or more of an explanation about the background of it the chat books because you you know you don't really come away with the sense of learning anything more about most of the characters that are on the reality show with her you know but other than her her israeli boyfriend who's a who's an odd duck in himself right and it's uh it's an interesting dynamic uh that they develop that they clearly uh just the background they they start talking with one another before the show on these listservs and stuff like that and they're clearly into one another or interested in one another but obviously when you when they meet up they're they're not they're not as uh um connected or faded as they initially thought they were yes and it does take some time. <laughs> no, for sure, right? Yeah. This is one of the best books I've read this year, I have to say. I, I really thought it was compelling in terms of how the, the storytelling was, was done. And it's something I'm still thinking about. I find it interesting. My two, two of my favorite books this year are very similar. This one's a little less political, I think, than... than uh, Burnham Wood, but it's still it's touching with a lot of the questions of the zeitgeist and 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 picking apart some of the 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 weird ways we consume and we live and it's uh, I I just found it was great. Yeah, and just sort of like you know like has Kevin's monitoring all the think pieces written about it and <laughs> his obsession is amazing. Yeah, but part of me it's like. I've totally been in those shoes before. I've totally obsessed over an ex. You know, you you just can't, you need to move on and you just don't know how. And in his case, he's just, and his ex isn't just like there in his imagination. She's on television every day. The whole world is <laughs> talking about her, yeah. yeah. And and he's a part of the story because at a point he gets brought into this reality TV show as a as an appendage. But it's just like yeah, I I, I sympathize with Kevin in terms of where even despite you know you want to shake him and and tell him it's time it's time to move <laughs> time to move on Kevin time to move on. <laughs> uh, so is this a book you're going to be recommending to uh, to folks? I will recommend it to people. Yeah, like I think someone coming in and saying I want to. Someone who might be wanting to kind of dip their toe into speculative fiction, kind of like a good way to start them, you know? Yeah, very accessible, too. And it's... Yes, it's very accessible. Someone that wants, like, a good plot-driven story that does a lot of character analysis, you know, like, if they like stories about, I want to get into the heads of the characters... They don't uh, want perfect people in the story. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I know there's some people who are really, that's their, uh, the criteria. It's like, I need to like them. And it's like, and I'm the opposite. It's like, I actually need to somewhat dislike my, but my characters as I'm reading. When we did the Wait Softly Brother book club, half of it 
was talking about how much we all dislike the main character, Catherine. <laughs> I really find the best books for book clubs or even books I like talking with friends and whatnot are books that are big, chunky, meaty, really ambitious, but don't pull it off completely. Uh, and I'm and I'm really looking, and I think that's good because the effort in itself is an accomplishment. And then the 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 part that they don't pull off as well is the the part you can really d- dig into and talk about why it doesn't work. And hence, why I love uh, Jonathan Franzen because I think he's one of the, <laughs> these individuals, and why I really thought uh, Biography of X was was fantastic because it's one of these great ambitious books that has something to for me missing. Yeah, exactly. And I would say like someone that I didn't mention that's had a huge impact on my life reading life would be uh, Haruki Murakami. And oh yeah, for sure. And I don't think he really ever has quite figured out how to nail the landing. You know, like because you kind of walk away going, yeah. well, that, well, he ended it. <laughs> And he's someone who's been criticized for how he writes women and, and things like that. And I think, you know, I know some people, when they, they know the writers have problematic elements to them, sometimes they'll be dismissive. And for me, it's like, read it and then dissect and criticize, right? Because you can still get things even if no book's perfect, right? Uh, with maybe a couple of exceptions. But uh, in general, that's uh, it's fine to, to dig in. Even if you like a book, it's fine to, to scratch at it a little. Uh, I want to thank you, Janet, for coming on the show. It's been a great episode. Yeah, it's and, been so uh, much fun doing this. Thank you for asking me. No, no worries at all. So we'll be back. I'm hoping to have another episode uh, before the end of the year uh, as well, in addition to this. But thank you so much. Thank you.